You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Uncivil Outlaw. Chapter 15 Into the Fire. Abigail and I lay intertwined. It was as though I had spent nearly half of my life wearing clothes that did not quite fit, and now, absurdly, I was still and calm and quiet. The discomfort had abated, the clothes fit, albeit I wore nothing but my birthday suit. I turned and looked at her sleeping face, crisscrossed with tresses of fiery red, and felt my heart clutch and ache. I gently stroked her shoulder and swore to myself alone to keep her safe. My mind drifted inexorably to Rebecca, and my heart turned again. I beheld the pattern from the past and understood now. I wanted to be with both women equally, and that was unfair on them. Each would rather I was happy than claim me for themselves, so it made logical sense to be with the one I could be with. I returned to that same feeling. I wanted to be with them both equally. Why could I not banish this ridiculously unhelpful internal demand? Why, when presented with logic and law and circumstance and emotional consequence, would it not be silent? We spent several more days in Deadwood, watching the balance held there between the vicious and the virtuous, the ones who took and those who gave. Abigail spoke privately with her father, and a sobering realization settled upon her. This was life in the West. Hard won and tenuous. It was on our third day in town, while I was fixing up the nag's saddlebags again, when I felt the cold touch of something more. A man named Jack McCall had taken a shine to me, seemingly, and kept on finding excuses to stumble past our dwellings on the way to the saloon. To play cards, he bragged, with Bill Hickok, a gunslinger of some repute. I beat him a second time last night. He spluttered his whiskery moustache flapping at me yet again. Should have heard the things he called me, more than a real man could bear. He gnashed his tobacco-stained teeth. Damn fool wagered his belt. Look! And it was true. A hefty, well-crafted tan leather gun belt was now tightened around McCall's skinny, malnourished waist. I reckon if I can face him down a third time, I'll get a hold of them guns, too. He yanked out a worn, corroded old pistol to show me his own sidearm. I was not impressed, and shrugged. The nag, in between both of us, snorted in derision at this malodorous fellow. That's nice, Jack, but he wasn't looking at me now. The tall, long-haired gent, well-dressed with a sash around his midriff to hold his pistol, was stalking from the gem theater just behind me. McCall placed a finger to his quivering lips and hefted his gun. I froze and turned to Hickok. Watch out! I shouted as McCall aimed to fire. My shield went up instinctually, and I found myself caught in the middle of a gunfight. Hickok turned and drew in one fluid motion, 
and there was a deafening exchange of lead threw itself back and forth between the men. Hickok, to his credit, attempted to aim directly for McCall, but his opponent was already drunk. His aim was off, and his weapon was unreliable. I heard a scream and saw blood arc through the air before me. McCall sank into the mud as the nag buckled, a terrible wound in his shoulder where a low bullet had pierced his flesh. He went down gasping as Hickok approached and stood sternly over his fallen enemy. Sheriff Seth Bullock marched from his offices across the street, right to where I was shouting for James, and attempting to staunch the flow of blood from the nag with my shirt sleeve. The fuck happened? Bullock demanded. Lady here saved my bacon, said Hickok. McCall drew on me, and she can testify. Do I have that correct, miss? Uh, yes. Now, do I have permission to retrieve my belt from this person? Hickok finished. At this, Bullock looked at me sharply. I'll get a veterinarian for your animal, he assured me. James was already sprinting over, his face wider than usual. (laughs) The nag lay on his side in the area of the stable that had been cleared for him, and I assisted the vet in tending to the bullet wound. I could see the horse biting his lip through the pain to avoid crying out in intelligible words. I patted his neck. Do we have whiskey handy? I asked. Abigail rushed to her father's store. Whiskey? The vet declared. Strange beast has a taste for it. I said as dismissively as possible. Soon enough he was bandaged and breathing with laboured pain, but stabilised. A bowl of rye lay beside his head for him to snake his tongue into and focus his attention not on the pain, but on fiery liquor. Abigail stalked off after pacing about helplessly, and I was left with the convalescing horse. This is piss, by the way. I wouldn't give this whiskey to a nearsighted badger. Neither would I, I said, quite truthfully. I want kick and fine wine. I don't think we'll find much of quality in this place. Balls! I want the finest wines available to humanity. I want them here, and I want them now. I'll see what I can do. You never told us you could be hurt. You believed me invincible because I am an exceptionally rare creature? He exclaimed deliriously. What? Am I to declare to everyone I meet, be on your guard, if you're a prick, I might well bleed? Well, no. Both of us are just surprised. How bad is the damage? It clipped your shoulder blade. We extracted the bullet, stopped the bleeding, and sewed it up. Then I think I should hopefully be able to walk again in a few days' time. But not fast, and I can't fly for now. We shall have to just proceed onwards the long, slow way. Don't worry. I've been learning the comings and goings of this town, and I have an idea. Within three days' time, a caravan is departing south, headed for the New Mexico Territory. If we go with them, we can stop at Cheyenne, Wyoming, and board the Union Pacific Railroad. Then we can head west together, with you resting in the boxcars there. And when we reach that shore, if you're up to flying again, we can head north or south, in search of these other wind doors Abigail saw. That sounds like a long walk. Around 270 miles to get to Cheyenne first. It will take us a week to reach it. I can't keep pace with the other horses. We'll load you onto a cart. Get several regular horses to pull us there. Well, 
If it's a choice between that and staying here, then I will allow you to carry me for a change. All right. You heal up. I'll be back once I've arranged this with Mr. Gray. I'm going to have to owe several people favors for the loan of the wagon. The nag eyed two of the mares in the stable, as well as one of the stallions, and tilted his head. I might have just found an incentive to get better. The shock of what had happened in the street had gotten to me. I found myself marching into the gym theater that evening. Where's Al? I asked Dan, the bartender. He's upstairs in his office. You really don't want to disturb him. At that, I marched up the stairs, ignoring Doherty's protests, and flung the office door open. Swearingen was sat in a chair, his fly unzipped, gripping the hair of the girl in his lap, administering to his dignity. For a fraction of a second, the flare of wild fury in his eyes looked to extract a torrent of abuse from his gnashing mouth, but he admirably restrained it and growled at me. Looking for a job? You and I are going to talk right now, I snarled. He waved the young woman away and she hurried past me, adjusting her dress and wiping her mouth, eyes wide with fear. Oh, come the fuck in and make yourself at fucking home. He gestured as he stood, stowed himself away with some exaggeration, and took a seat behind his desk. What can I do for you tonight, Captain Gray? You know who I am, then? Got enough eyes and ears around this place to be able to string two facts together. He said evenly. So are we to deal on the plausibility of an advantageous allegiance with interested parties back east? Or is it the other direction you're after and a respite from prying eyes for the both of us? At this point, I'm leaning towards the latter. I'm glad to hear it. Especially fortuitous for you, since it appears you forgot to put iron in your holster this morning. I glanced down. My belt had been empty for months now. I don't need a gun. Will I find you have more up your sleeves? More than you want to come into contact with. Swearingen, I've spent days deliberating what to do about you. As I you. And the conclusion I reached is that somehow you're a boon to these people. Keeping them straight-wise when hazards appear at the sides of the road. Oh, it warms my cockles to be regarded as such a benefactor of the misguided. But I'm supposing you didn't smash your way into my place of business and spoil my evening's blowing of the ground souls just to butter my unattended asshole. No, I had no wish to disturb your amorous congress. I had a mind to take in your life the other day for what you did to my mother. But I fancy you were kinder than my assumptions first conjured. Your fancies would be correct. She was treated like the blessed fucking Queen of Sheba. I also fancy something about me may possibly call to mind that particular personage to whom you became so attached. You got her moxie, yeah. Good. Then I trust you recall she was a woman of her word, and I do retain that quality about me. So let me make you this promise. My associate and I are leaving in a few days' time. And we intend to never step foot back here. We shall leave Deadwood to your devices. That bullock seems like the type to keep you in check. Yes, he's the kind that don't take well the dirty coin. And it's so tough to slip a dirty blade into the cocksucker. Well, I like him. But if I hear anything about you mistreating my father, or if he disappears without a word, I'll be back. And neither of us wants that. 
Oh, I don't know. Starting to like being denigrated by you in quite such a regular manner. At this, I nodded, held out my hand toward his office door, fluttered my gloved fingers to illustrate the extremity's emptiness, then let a cannon shot loose from my shield. <laughs> Al's window shattered and collapsed with a deafening crash. The door hung there for a moment before falling inward onto its face, blown clean off the hinges. Swearingen had jumped at the sound and impact, and had a knife in his hand as he stared at me in horror from across the desk. I looked at the knife and shook my head slowly. Let's pray to the fucking Almighty we never meet again, I said, and walked through the gaping door hole and out of his life. We headed south once more along the winding trail through the Black Hills Forest. The nag was flopped on his side in the back of our cart as promised. There wasn't much for Abigail and I to do for a week but spend time sat side by side enjoying a physical closeness. Unusually, we seemed to have stopped talking to one another so much. It wasn't that we were shy or afraid of what we might say. We just didn't have to anymore. We were together and in love. But we were also hunted, and the sense that this momentary peace might be shattered at any minute lent a certain frisson to proceedings. When our wagon train would stop to rest, we would find ourselves in the forest, pressed up against a tree, yanking down pants and hitching up legs to snatch a few minutes of intense trembling, thrusting. By the end of seven days, we had charted the secret places on one another's bodies, learned what those unusual noises meant, and I had experienced a few things I never dreamed I would with James. It was, ironically, considering the danger we were in and the teetering high stakes, the best of times. As we neared Cheyenne early on the last afternoon, I guided the nag down from the back of his cart, and he stretched and whinnied and cantered around the nearby field, ready to walk once more. I won't go back in there again, he whispered obstinately. Everybody treats me like a sick horse, and you two disappear for hours at a time to rut like randy spaniels in the forest. <laughs> You're simply envious, I shot back, smirking at what he was describing. But we are nearly there, and you can rest on the train again. Actually, I'm feeling rather limber after all this time on my back. I'd imagine that's how Abigail feels too. This last part was delivered laden with smut, and I turned away from him. The caravan filed past us, its passengers eager to find board and resupply in Wyoming's capital. Abigail sat with our two trusty horses and beamed across at me. That was when I glanced up just making out the faint sounds of a familiar, aggressive rumble. In the far, far distance, the airship thundercloud was just visible, emerging from the winter mist. That is fucking impossible, I declared. No, not impossible. James snapped, lapsing into a verbal quickfire. Spies in Deadwood, information brokers, points of communication. You are still far too recognizable. Frankly, I am as well. Why did we not disguise ourselves? Why did we assume we were safe once we were beyond the pan-state line, out of White's jurisdiction? Amazing we were not picked up on the road. They must have had word of where we were headed and rushed to intercept. 
I looked across to the city of Cheyenne. We can't try to get on the next train out of here. They'd stop it and search for us. What do we do? James, for the first time ever, seemed lost for words. I thought we were beyond the information net. Now we're nearly caught. May I suggest something? The nag ventured. Yes, please. Just lead me up that trail. We'll find us somewhere secluded and away from their visibility, and I'll see if I can fly us across Wyoming. We'll detour far enough from the railroad. If they give chase, can you outrun them? Uh... The nag shrugged. I can bloody well try. Though with my recent injury, I'm going to be slower, and it's going to hurt. Okay, let's go. The most important thing is not to be seen from the air right now. We made our way up the frosty trail, never looking behind us, always hearing those turbine engines. Eventually, we were far from the city limits and had passed under the cover of trees. We proceeded onward to find a clearing we could take off from, and as the woods parted, we beheld an astonishing sight. There, in the glade before us, up on top of enormous chicken legs, stood a tall and tapered house with a roof of thatched black sticks. It was exactly as Harau had described in extraordinary detail through Miguel, sometimes having to come up with new word signs to properly evoke the uncanny effect of standing before this eldritch dwelling. The door began to slowly open, obscuring who was behind it, though we knew who she would be already. It took so long that a scream began to rise in the back of my throat. I told myself that the three of us could handle whatever came out, but that tensing, shuddering part of me remained unconvinced. The door finally hung fully open, and there was a breath of trepidation. Then the witch emerged, gliding forth to stand with hands crossed. Her face was veiled, but we felt her eyes upon us. And though I suspected from her demeanour that she was smiling, this did not cause me relief. Her pale, bare arms stood out against her thin, black shroud which fluttered and rustled in the wind, skin adorned with myriad tattoos, fletched and spiny, clinging and interweaving. They seemed to slowly shift and move, slithering from her hands up those limbs to disappear into her clothing. I turned to Abigail, ready to run, only for the nag to give a soft cry, his wings suddenly erupting from his back, as in the same motion he climbed into the air and disappeared beyond the clouds. <laughs> the two of us stood aghast, drenched in apprehension, abandoned, and in the doorway of a font of nightmares. Guess that means we're staying for the night. Abigail muttered. Her fingers found mine as she held me tightly. Yagana parted her own hands and beckoned. Come in, out of the cold. Her voice was like treacle-glazed sandpaper, weaving over a chalkboard. You'll catch your death. been listening to episode 15 of Uncivil Outlaw, Into the Fire, written, edited and directed by Alexander Shaw. Captain Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. 
Dr. James Penrose, Jack McCall, Bill Hickok, Seth Bullock, and L.S. Alfred Swearingen, performed by Alex Shaw. Dan Doherty, performed by Greg Downing. Dr. Harriet, performed by Toby Yunkius. The Nag, performed by Spencer Lieb. And Yagana, performed by Theo Lee and Sharon Shaw. Hit the Streets, Long Note 3, Miri's Magic Dance, Dragon and Toast, and Smoking Gun, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Still, composed and performed by Ross Bugden. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. On Civil Outlaw Theme, True Greatness, performed by Bjorn Lynn of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our top-tier $15 sponsors get a shout-out every episode, so many thanks to... Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Angus Lee, Kevin Bay, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Johan Clayson, Joe Gesiga, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Matthew A. Siebert, Kat Esman, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Tom Painter, Dan Hepner, Marty Huey, Mark Luksh, Brian Novak, Frankie Punzi, Aaron Lecluse, Lorraine Chisholm, Timothy Green, Cassandra Newman, Duran Barnett, Benjamin, Joseph Gluck, Greg Downing, Kieran Dashler, Dan Mayer, Jameis Enright, David Sheely, Chris Finnick, and Joe Crow. Mm-hmm.